research that we are looking at today is just the kind of paper that makes you glad to be an OT professional in this day and age. The article showcases how far we've come in the prevention, early detection, and treatment of cerebral palsy. The authors also explore the strength of the evidence behind 182 interventions for cerebral palsy, organizing them into an evidence traffic light. This is just an important paper for all OTs to read, not just because CP is one of the most common physical disabilities that we see on our caseloads, but because the paper is so well-written. The authors do a fantastic job of highlighting the general trends behind what works, what doesn't work, and the progress that still needs to be made. And then after we review the article, I am just thrilled to welcome Dr. Iona Novak, one of the article's authors. Her and I will discuss the implications for your occupational therapy practice. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT journal articles. Then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this week's article with Dr. Novak, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. All you have to do to earn CEU credit is listen to this podcast in its entirety and then log into the OT Potential Club to take a test and you'll earn a certificate. So bearing in mind that this could count as a continuing education course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify the common mechanisms that make CP interventions effective. And second, you'll be able to recognize evidence-based principles to guide your motor interventions for CP. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we will bring on Dr. Novak to discuss how it plays out in your practice. The article that we are looking at today is called The State of the Evidence Traffic Lights 2019, a systematic review of interventions for preventing and treating children with cerebral palsy. It comes to us from the journal Current Neurology and Neuroscience Reports. It was published in 2020 and it is ranked seventh on our list of the 100 most influential OT-related journal articles. So the article begins with just a general update on the progress in the prevention and early detection of cerebral palsy. As a reminder, CP is the most common physical disability of childhood. In the past decade, though, groundbreaking discoveries in prevention and early diagnosis have made a major impact on incidence rates and the levels of severity. In high-income countries like Australia, where this paper was written, the incidence of CP has fallen by a staggering 30%. There's no single reason that we know of for this positive trend, and epidemiologists believe it is a combination of comprehensive obstetric care and neonatal intensive care interventions. The intro of the article also gives just like a big picture update on the progress in CP treatment. The authors tell us that over the last decade, the evidence base for CP treatment has expanded rapidly. 200-plus systematic reviews have been published since 2013. And this provides clients and families with the possibility of treatments that are safer and more effective. But the sheer volume of this research being published makes it challenging for clinicians and families to keep up to date, which leads us to this paper. So what was the intent of this research? 
The authors sought to summarize the entire CP evidence base into one paper in order to provide families, clinicians, managers, and policymakers with a big picture overview of the best available evidence. And what were their methods for doing this? The authors used something known as a systematic review of systematic reviews methodology. For our purposes, I'll just refer you to the article for their full search and inclusion exclusion criteria. But I did want to highlight that they appraised the evidence using GRADE, which is the evidence rating system endorsed by the World Health Organization. And they also applied the evidence alert traffic light system. In the system, you code the evidence with the colors of a traditional traffic light. And so the color green means quote unquote go. That high quality evidence from randomized controlled trials and systematic reviews supports the effectiveness. Yellow means, quote, to measure clinical outcomes. And the reason for doing so would either be that promising evidence suggests possible effectiveness, but more research is needed, or that no research exists and therefore effects are unknown, or conflicting findings exist and therefore it is unclear how a patient might respond. And also within the yellow category, the authors draw a helpful worth it line where anything above that line is probably worth trying, below probably not. And then red simply means stop. That high quality evidence from randomized controlled trials or systematic reviews indicates either ineffectiveness or harm. So using this methodology and these systems, what were their results? The authors found 247 articles that met the inclusion criteria. And within these articles, 182 interventions were identified. 23% were strategies to prevent CP, and 77% were interventions to manage CP. I'm going to give you a very high-level overview of the results, but each section in this article is so rich. If you're interested in a particular area, I definitely recommend that you go read that section in full. I'm going to breeze really quickly through the results related to prevention of CP, but I did want to really highlight that the most notable breakthroughs in cerebral palsy research have occurred in this area of prevention. The authors put forth that there is now a pressing moral imperative to translate these breakthroughs from high-income countries to low-income countries. And I will just refer you to the chart in the article for the information on the most effective prevention strategies. So moving into the results related to the management of CP, which is where most of us as OTs work, this section of the article is just a wealth of information. You'll find lots of practical guidance and plenty of general takeaways under each subcategory that I'm going to mention, but I'm going to specifically highlight some general takeaways and then some insights from the motor intervention section, just because these speak so directly to the field of occupational therapy. So here were the general takeaways that the authors put forth about the green light interventions or the interventions they found that just had that strong evidence support. I'm going to highlight three of them. First, in the green light interventions, you can really see that the treatment outcome matched with the appropriate mechanism of action. In my own words, I call this, you gain what you train. For example, strength training was effective in improving muscle strength. And this closely relates to the second takeaway that upstream effects can not be assumed from our treatments. The literature simply does not seem to support the idea that improving something discrete like muscle strength will automatically translate into a broader improvement like functional gains. If you want to improve function, you have to practice function. You can't assume that 
just doing muscle training will automatically translate. And then that closely ties to the third takeaway, which is that layering multiple interventions may be beneficial when there are multiple goal-limiting factors. For example, muscle strengthening may augment functional mobility training, but they really have to be layered on top of each other to find that effectiveness. And all of this is just an important reminder to select interventions that have mechanisms that match each child's specific goals. So those were just the general takeaways from the green light interventions. And now we're going to zoom in on motor interventions and talk about some general takeaways. And then we'll look specifically at the traffic light. So in this section on motor interventions, the authors say that there is a clear distinction in the research between what works and what does not work for improving function and in performance of task. And that the green light interventions share the following features that they include the practice of real-life tasks and activities, they use self-generated active movements, they are high-intensity in nature, and the practice directly targets goals set by the child or parent proxy if necessary. The mechanism of action that seems to make these green light approaches work is experience-dependent neuroplasticity. Okay, so turning to the traffic light, this is just a giant bubble chart with those 182 interventions. They're categorized into different areas, and with each intervention, it says what it is targeting. Since there are 182 interventions, I am not going to read all of them. I'm going to highlight some of the green lights and red lights from the motor intervention area, and I'll read them and I'll say the target, and I think you'll be able to hear what we talked about, how the intervention really links directly to the target. So in motor interventions, some of the green light interventions were mobility training for walking speed, CIMT for hand function, activity and participation, strength training for muscle strength, home program for hand function, task-specific training for gross motor, bimanual training for hand function, action observation for hand function, environmental enrichment for hand function and gross motor skills, and hippotherapy for balance symmetry. Then there's a ton of yellow light interventions, and we'll skip right down to the red light because I think you can hear that mismatch between the intervention and this really broad target that they were trying to address. So in the red light is NDT in its original passive form for gross motor skills, sensory integration for motor skills, cranial osteopathy for gross motor skills, and hyperbaric oxygen for gross motor skills. So that kind of highlights the motor interventions. Like I said, I'm not going to read through everything, but I do want you to know that on this chart, they also group the interventions according to tone, contracture and alignment, pain, sleep, pulmonary function, drooling and oral health, communication, cognition, self-care function, and parental outcomes. And in the article, they provide some clinical guidance for using this traffic light, and they recommend the following steps for decision-making. First, they recommend that the clinician ask the child and family to define their intervention goals. Second, to match the goal to the outcome indicator headings and look up the intervention options. Third, to select the intervention with the highest level of evidence and offer that intervention, explaining to the family why that intervention is most likely to help someone achieve that goal. And fourth and lastly, if the intervention is ineffective, unavailable, or if the family declines, simply move on to the intervention with the next highest level of evidence. 
The authors encourage us to use transparent conversation, compassionately acknowledging the disappointment if the child does not respond to the intervention, and to collectively problem-solve a plan that matches the child's capabilities. In the conclusion and discussion, the authors just let us know that this paper summarizes the best available evidence for CP interventions as of 2019. And they highlight that there really is a large portion of yellow light interventions and that this just highlights the need for ongoing research to establish the effectiveness or I guess ineffectiveness of these commonly used treatment options. Okay, that wraps up our article breakdown, and I just cannot emphasize enough how amazing I think this paper is. You can really, really feel the intent to get the information about the best treatments in front of clinicians and in front of families and to really make that tangible difference in a child's life. And I just feel so honored to be speaking to one of the article's authors, Dr. Iona Novak. She is an OT who holds her PhD. Professor Novak is the Cerebral Palsy Alliance Chair of Allied Health at the University of Sydney, Australia. She's a Fulbright scholar, and her research aims to discover, test, and translate new treatments in priority areas identified by people with cerebral palsy. So without further ado, I will patch Iona into this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Novak. It's great to have you. G'day. I have to say that because I'm an Australian, but it's lovely to be here. <laughs> oh, I'm so thankful that you're here to talk about this topic of, first of all, providing the most effective treatment that we can to kids with cerebral palsy, but also these big picture trends that we see happening in occupational therapy and the neuroscience that's driving our treatments and just these trends of what seems to be working and what doesn't work as well. I think there's a really broad application to what we're talking about today. But before we dive into all that, I wanted to just learn a little bit about you and start with how you found occupational therapy. Wow. My grandmother was my inspiration. She was a woman of integrity and a woman of sass. And I always, as a child, was sort of curious about this story of this deeply religious woman escaping boarding school by climbing down the ivy out the second window. But really, she was a fun person. And what she was actually known for, she was a war hero. She was a, a nurse in the Second World War, and she was well known for conducting solo neurosurgery herself on Hercules planes for soldiers that had been injured in the battlefield and no surgeon was available and her value set was about, you know, is there something we can do? Is there is something more we can do for people? And she really instilled her value set in me. So that led me to always want to um, work in healthcare. I wasn't really sure what it was. I took an opportunity in Australia as a school student. You get to take two weeks of a year to go to a job and, and explore whether that's what you'd like to do. So what I did was go to a remote hospital in Australia and look at all different types of healthcare over a two-week period. And that's where I found occupational therapy. And it was a good fit for me. I, I, I wanted to work with children and follow my grandmother's uh, footsteps. It was probably a little bit unexpected to my family that I wanted to work in health. My my mother had uh, a very traumatic experience with the health system as a child and so really wasn't that interested in healthcare. She, long before COVID, was a patient in a quarantine centre in, in Australia. So my grandfather was a 
senior scientist for the Australian Research Agency called CSIRO, and he used to travel overseas on ships to collect plant samples for Australia and seeds. And on one of those trips, my mother got very sick as a 14-year-old and was diagnosed with, at the time she was diagnosed with cholera, but it was a mistake diagnosis. She actually had dysentery, but she was put in a quarantine station as a 14-year-old by herself and waved to my grandmother from the shore and on a rowboat. It was extremely traumatic for her. So I had this sort of tension between respect to my mother's wishes and wanting to be like my grandmother. But, you know, I'm glad I found healthcare. And one of the things my grandmother did was work for something in Australia called the Flying Doctor Service, which is basically an ambulance that's a plane. And uh, I had the opportunity to do that as an OT and part of my career, take wheelchairs to children that live on remote farms so that they could participate in gathering sheep and bringing the cows to the feed in the wheelchair. So it, it was it was a great choice for me. Hmm. Wow. Your personal story holds so many of the tensions that we see in our field today. I, I love thinking about anchoring it in the value set of your grandmother and the integrity. And I think that's what so many of us want to bring to our practice. But then this tension that sometimes as healthcare providers, things that we do don't work and don't help and can be harmful. And that is a very hard tension to straddle. And that's interesting how that kind of came to play in your story. And we'll keep talking about that more today. But so that's how you found occupational therapy. And then tell me about how you became involved in cerebral palsy research. I first met cerebral palsy when I was four years old. Her name was Louisa and she was my best friend. And we were hanging upside down in a tree at the time. And because we were against gravity, her jeans slipped a little bit. And I saw this um, orthosis on her foot. I now know it's called an orthosis. At the time, this boot with metal struts. I, I was very curious about it. And Louisa never missed a beat. And she saw me staring at her foot and said to me, I've got cerebral palsy. Get over it. <laughs> and then she said, let's play. And that was one of those pivotal moments in my life because when I look back on that moment now, she didn't say, fix me. She didn't say, change me. She actually invited me to be her equal and to play with her. And that has defined my entire career. And so I next went on and I met Sarah Palsy again when I was eight. My mother had a very strict no television policy because she was a teacher and believed that TV would lower our IQ. So the minute she left the house, my sisters and I had a little roster going. One person would make sure we were checking to see if mum was coming home so we didn't get caught. The other two would watch TV. And one day in one of those unauthorised viewings, I saw a true Australian film about a, a young woman called Annie who had cerebral palsy. And at that time, she was in an institution assumed to have an intellectual disability as well as her physical disability. But the teacher who came to her institution discovered, in fact, she was incredibly bright and supported her to not only get out of a cot, which she was in as a 14-year-old, but to learn to speak with a communication device and eventually adopted her and she became a lawyer and a human rights activist in Australia. And so I could never tell my mother I wanted to work with people with cerebral palsy because then I'd have to disclose how I found out about it. <laughs> <laughs> However, it was a pivotal moment combined with my grandmother that this tension you talked about before of healthcare can do harm but healthcare can do amazing things is how do I bring that and so as a clinician a trained clinician a moment for me in the switch between clinician and research was that 
Botox or botulinum toxin had come into play as injections for reduction of spasticity for children with cerebral palsy in the legs. And I keep saying to the rehab physician, well, if it's so good for the legs, why don't we do the arms? And he would say to me, well, it's too hard. The muscles in the thumb are too small. It's way too difficult. And I kept at it. I have sort of have a little bit of a mantra, never say never to Novak. <laughs> and I, I kept on it with him. And he said, well, if you, if you really want to pursue this, you have to do a research degree so that we have the supervisor. And I was like, no problem. I'll do a PhD. So that was sort of start of my journey into clinical trials. And we were lucky enough. We were one of the earliest groups in the world to do a upper limb botulinum toxin trial and that led me into a research career where I, I got to learn that by listening deeply, like listening to Annie in that film, but listening deeply to people where I could do maybe more. I, I might never meet the people, but by listening deeply and answering questions that mattered to them, there was a possibility to even further improve healthcare. And so that's how I got into research. Hmm. Wow. It's so interesting to me having these conversations on the podcast and hearing this common turning point of moving away from thinking about fixing something to listening deeply and really partnering with people. I think the therapists I hear who are so passionate about their careers, they've all taken this turn and think of their care in that way from all kinds of different backgrounds. So that's super interesting for me to hear. I wanted to ask too specifically about the idea of the traffic light and how you came to that in your research career. Yeah, the traffic light came about one day for me at a moment I had at work. I had the most wonderful manager who was a a social worker and she was a compassionate woman and always did the right thing by families. And then one day she came to work and we had all had this really long waiting list that we'd been very concerned about because we didn't want children to have to wait. And she, you know, announced to us they'd made a decision overnight that they were going to make this particular service revision and make some children eligible, ineligible to address the waiting list. And I remember having this lightning bolt moment of going, this is one of the most caring people I know, but why did you make that decision? Like you're a logical, smart woman, you, you're really compassionate, but how, why did you cut that and not that? And I realized we had no common language between clinicians, researchers, patients, managers, policymakers. And so I, it got me thinking about how could I make this easy? Because I know this person, I know her value set that she would make the best possible decision. So we, we needed a common language. So it became a simple process initially was just like, do you know what's in the, the evidence base about these patients? And I'm wondering if we could revise that decision and look at it this way, you know, and then it sort of grew from there because we could quickly see what it was going to have as a momentum. So that that's really the origin of it, how it happened. And then an important policy changed and happened in Australia that we now have an insurance model in Australia, but it's different to the American insurance model in that it's a no-fault insurance model. So everybody gets the insurance paid by the government. The money is given to the patients and then they can buy whatever they need. But I realised that multiple choices for families was 
exciting. It gave freedom. It gave control. However, you have to have enormous health literacy to know which choice to make. And unfortunately, this insurance model assumes everyone has good health literacy and some people have amazing health literacy. But for some people, they're marginalised by their health literacy. So they want to make the best decision. But how do you navigate lots of unfiltered, unregulated information on internet and realise the power that the traffic light might have in terms of actually cutting through in an objective and simple way to how do you make treatment choices that are most likely to get the results you want. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And that power of the shared language with our patients is so compelling to me. And having conceived of occupational therapy as something that's client-centered, or I've always thought of it that way, but seeing the shared language that the traffic light provides makes me Just see that tension of in occupational therapy, we want our language to be distinct and our work to be distinct, but historically that has made it hard to have that shared language with our patients and really taken us away from client-centeredness. And we need shared language like this, not only in cerebral palsy research, but across our profession. And I just love the concept of it. Turning to the traffic light... I wanted to start with just talk a little bit about the prevention and early detection. I think as OTs, we might skim over that because lots of us don't work in that area. But I just wanted to start there and ask how you see OTs being involved in this part of cerebral palsy care. OT involvement in the prevention and early detection of cerebral palsy now is really a central role. As you said, historically, it was not a role. So as a clinician, and again, I had one of those epiphany moments. I used to see children from two years up and, you know, till, till all ages. And we accepted they came late. And sometimes you sort of have that internal ruing as a clinician, like, mm, if only we'd seen you a bit earlier. And how did this get to here? And then one day I said, well, why do we accept this? Why do we actually accept that children come late like what is the challenge here we all know they've got cerebral palsy whether they've got the label or not so there's there's something amiss here so I went back to the literature to see whether there were any tools worldwide that could accurately identify cerebral palsy and found some work in Europe and so particularly something called the general movements assessment which is a video of the child's spontaneous movement before they actually have voluntary control and and from that video you can score whether they're on a pathway to normal or on a pathway to cerebral palsy and I was curious because this was a tool that was not used in the United States it was not used in Australia but it seemed to be used in a couple of countries in Europe so I reached out to them and discovered you know, you needed to be certified and trained. I got them to Australia to train some people. But, of course, that had, had no impact on practice either because everyone said, oh, that's not how we do things here. And really then started on a knowledge translation journey and assembled 40 authors who were people with cerebral palsy, parents, and all the people in a multidisciplinary team that you'd expect to be involved in early diagnosis and early treatment. And together we wrote a clinical practice guideline based on evidence. And we built this in-between step called high risk of cerebral palsy because it also used to make me frustrated as a clinician that, that the parents could say, I've been told my baby's at high risk. And I'm like, yeah, but at high risk of what? High risk of autism? high risk of poverty, high risk of intellectual disability, high risk of cerebral palsy, all of those treatments in a five-year-old are incredibly different. So 
why would they be the same thing in a baby? And I, I, um, I didn't like the fact that early intervention was generic enrichment as the same thing for everyone. In fact, if we could be more specific, we could harness plasticity. And so really got me on this journey of if we had an in-between label as well. So if you couldn't call it cerebral palsy yet, you were starting to pitch for the, for the family high risk of a particular type of direction so people could get the right kinds of interventions as well. And so, you know, we published that guideline in JAMA Pediatrics in the US and we put it there particularly in that journal so it had good global uptake. And, you know, there's been three big hospitals around the world and do implementation studies now and they've we've together lowered the diagnosis from 19 months to three months when, when you use that tool. And, you know, that's if you think about, you know, if we all left this podcast and had a stroke and we waited two years until we decided to have any OT afterwards, we think it was a pretty crummy hospital. And yet that's what we were doing to children with cerebral palsy. So now they're getting early intervention and the optimal window of plasticity and recovery. And, and we're starting to see, you know, new clinical trials, trying new treatments with these children that, you know, we really think are starting to deliver new gains for these children, which I think will change the landscape of cerebral palsy. So in summary, OTs have a big role in diagnosis now. And it's not that they make the diagnosis. Obviously, there's a lot of times with your eyes when you can make the diagnosis, but you might be required by a pediatrician to they order a test and the, the test they order is the general movements assessment or the Hammersmith Infant Neurological Assessment or a number of other tools. And you conduct that test and give it back to the pediatrician who then pulls that information together or the neurologist and forms a diagnosis. But those are not tests that doctors typically conduct. It's a little bit like ordering pathology, but we have a really important role in actually helping to make this happen because we're the people that can do those sorts of movement assessments. So I think this is a really big changing landscape and we're going to have a very big role in early intervention because, you know, we don't wait till children don't have hand function and they get a referral to OT. We, we know a lot about the integration of motor with cognition, with language in um, our discipline that can provide an enriched environment for children that can support their really, their best early learning. Hmm. Yeah, I hope, I'm thinking especially of students, and I hope so many more students set their sight on working with mothers and infants. There's so much exciting research in that area. And when I was in OT and OT school 10 years ago, I never even thought of that as an area that I could work in. And I really hope that that landscape is changing and just the imagination of our profession of what we can be bringing to that age group. So that's just a tiny bit on prevention and early detection. Moving into the treatment part of the traffic light, I wanted to start with just like big picture as I was reading that. I was really excited because I saw all these neuroscience principles that we've talked about on the podcast. Usually when we're talking about stroke and Parkinson's disease and adult rehab, but there's such a translation, I think, into pediatrics, especially that experience-dependent neuroplasticity. And also, we've talked about you gain what you train. Like, we can't expect our treatments to have this, like, broad effect. They typically just impact what we're working on. They don't translate to function automatically. So I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit to the trends that you see in the neuroscience behind the most well-supported treatments? 
there are many green light interventions and a number of them now, actually a vast majority of them are ones that are provided by occupational therapists. And that's been a big shift in the last 15 years. And I think when I look at it then from a bird's eye perspective or the helicopter view, there's some unifying principles there, as you say, from neuroscience. And they're all around things that harness plasticity. So if we go through some of those major principles, so you touched on that first one of experience and use dependent plasticity. So use it or lose it. And, you know, the brain does not waste real estate. And that's why, you know, people who had an amputation can feel phantom limb pain. They've still got cortex dedicated, but eventually it resolves. And this thing happens in cerebral palsy. If you get a diagnosis really late and you're lying on the floor on the back looking at the ceiling for a long time, for many years, then maybe you're learning about the colour white by looking at the ceiling. You're not actually using your motor tracks that are available to you. You're probably fading them. So use it or lose it is really important principle. And another one that is there that is use it and improve it. So that's that experience-dependent plasticity. So you get what you train or you, tra- you gain what you train. And it's that specificity component as well. So if we pulled out of cerebral palsy for a minute, we all know that airline pilots spend a lot of time in a flight simulator practicing as well as their flight hours. But none of us want to get in a plane with a pilot that's only done flight sim time, right? We really want someone that's done the real task as well. So this proxy practice is good. It's it, it's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. You, you really need the actual real life task. And I think OTs understand this concept because we've been embedded in the value of occupation, our history as a profession, you know, when the first OT noticed that soldiers recovered better when they were doing something meaningful in rehabilitation. You know, that's the history of our profession. But for a lot of people or health professionals, it feels less sexy, less scientific to be training the real task. They want to be doing something specialist with a device and something hands-on. And, and parents want that as well. However, brains love specificity of practice. They, they want the pilot in the actual plane making decisions. And so we want children practicing the real tasks, whether it's dressing, whether it's, you know, eating with utensils, whether it's um, playing with a friend in the playground and one day the friend wants to play and the next day they don't. And how do you manage those two scenarios? So we need specific practice. And if we, we know all of this, if we take it back to athletics, so let's think about Alison Felix, an amazing American sprinter who won, you know, medals in the 200 and the 400, extraordinary woman, fit, could probably do anything. But would she win a basketball tournament? Probably not unless she practiced basketball, right? So she'd be she'd be better than I would be if you put her on the court. But there's a specificity of practice to everything. And so we seem to accept this in music. We accept it in athletics. But it's been a, a late idea in rehabilitation. But it's a really important one for neuroplasticity. Another one is uh, around repetition or intensity of practice. So the more we repeat something, the more we strengthen connectivity onto that pathway. So I explain it to parents that it's like a gravel driveway when you start out and the more you practice, it becomes like a smooth concrete freeway with six lanes. Whereas if you don't use it, it's always a pretty rough track and it can actually fade as well because the brain doesn't waste real estate. So you have to do a certain amount of maintenance practice as well. And that comes from that idea that networks that fire together, wire together. That's sort of the basis of um, neuroplasticity. And so the amount that you practice. So the the traffic light paper is really designed to help you choose the what, but 
how much it is also an important piece. We always choose the what first because that dictates the how much, but that's an important part of evidence-based decision-making as well because there's no point choosing the green light intervention but giving it underdosed. You still won't get an effective result. You have to do it at the, the, at the right dose. You need to know the doses as well. So there's that famous New York bestseller book about the 10,000-hour rule. You know, getting at that concept of um, intensity of practice. But uh, children need an intensity. We did do a meta-analysis of, you know, over 700 children in 74 randomised trials and found that if you practice the actual goal, the actual task they wanted, you get a result at 14 hours, whereas if you do general practice, you, you, it takes 40 hours to get a result. So being specific really does matter. There's also the motivation Piece and child set goals is incredibly important. Um, you know, if I, I, you know, I'm here in Italy today, I'm calling from Italy. It's fun. The idea for me to go to a, an Italian cooking class, but if you hated cooking and I said you have to go to a cooking class, that, that you'd be pretty unmotivated to learn to cook, right? Because then you're going to get stuck with the cooking. So motivation really does actually matter. And the other part is variability. So when we talk about specific training, not just doing the one thing, rote over and over, you need variability. So we know this as people that work in classrooms. Sometimes the child can perform something very well in a quiet room, one-to-one with the OT and the blinds down on perfect lighting, perfect sound levels and perfect cueing from the OT, but put them back in the classroom and they can't perform the skill because there's another student that's distracting and um, there's noise and there's other things to look at. So variability of practice is also important for generalisation. And, you know, we see that play out in many, many things that children learn to do. So uh, specificity and variability have to go together. So if I took an example of learning to ride a bike, you know, when I learned to ride a bike, there was the classic way with a bicycle with training wheels and your parents holding on the back and shouting and cheering and you get the hang of it and then all of a sudden they take the training wheels off and it's terrifying and you don't really want to do it anymore because you're going to fall over. And these days, most children learn on those little wooden balance bikes where their feet are on the ground the whole time. And why do they learn much, much faster on the balance bike? That's because it's a better mimic of actual balance. So right from the beginning, in addition to steering, turning, stopping, they're learning balance, uh, not leaving the hardest part of the task to the end, which is the training wheels method. And, and so uh, this variability as well as specificity is, is incredibly important. So I think, yeah, there's those unifying features to all the green light interventions that include training, that they harness plasticity because they use these principles uh, very, very well. And we know that children with cerebral palsy respond to plasticity training and it's been pretty underdone in our field before. They had a lot of treatments focused on repairing their symptoms, but in fact, if they train hard at high intensity on activities that are meaningful to them, they make the most gains. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting for me to hear because on one hand, I'm like, yes, this is totally what I was taught as an OT to be doing things that are meaningful to the patient in real life practice. But on the other hand, I'm thinking this is really different than how a lot of rehab is carried out and what people expect from rehab that they expect to come and have the therapist be the director for it to be very hands-on where almost they're like a passive recipient of rehab and what you're talking about requires such active participation 
on the part of the patient, starting with like even identifying their own goals. And I think a lot of times as therapists, we don't even start there. So I I think my question is, how as OTs can we set the tone for treatment sessions that are driven by the patient and have that really active participation when that's not what our patients are expecting a lot of times? You raise a really important point about expectations management and also how we brand the profession. So there's the balance between specialization and expertise versus being a coach and being a supporter of an enabler of someone to achieve their own life. And I think it's important that we get that balance right, that it is really an art form. I tend to think of it this way. I've never met a child that raised themselves. And, you know, Children and parents are a package deal. They're, they're a dyad, right? And that means that equally what the child wants is important, but equally supporting the parent in that role um, is really important. So there's actually an intervention name for that. It's parent education. People often just say, oh, well, I talk to the parent. But actually I, I, I try and encourage therapists to actually label that as an intervention. It's parent education or parent coaching, depending on the, the way that you're doing that because that actually is very powerful. So there are meta-analyses, say, in children with behaviour disorders that the, the biggest treatment effect size is actually for the parent more than for the child. But isn't that wonderful? Because that means there'll be carryover. I, I'm not going to live with the child for the rest of my life, but the parent is, right? So, you know, if you don't work with the parent, you're losing this potential piece of, of treatment effectiveness. I really don't love seeing OT in practice where it's a drop-off service and the parent drops the person there. Maybe it gives the parent a little bit of respite. However, you're really going to underdose the therapy in the end because you're going to be seeing them whatever it is once a week or whatever. One hour out of you know seven days is, is really not going to get plasticity. So you're missing out by not coaching um, the parent as well. Or if you have the parent in the session but the parent's a passive partner and, and you've set it up that way because they're on their phone and or you've put a chair in the corner for them or however that rolls, the way you set up the environment and the way you choose to invite them into the process is really important. So I always start with, you know, saying to families, I really like to hear what it is that you want to do. And that tells me what we're going to get the most gains from in therapy. So tell me about that, what it is that you'd like to see. And some of the wording from the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure is what did you want the child to do? What do you, they need to do? What are they expected to do? And, and those are all good words as well. But setting a tone of partnership. And I always say to parents that in a very natural way, somewhere early in the conversation that, you know, you know your child much better than me. So you're going to be able to choose activities that are best fit for them and, and for the family. I'm here to learn from you as well, but I'm here also to support you with your questions and provide some guidance, maybe from evidence or from experience about some strategies we could try together. So I never position it as if I'm going to be telling them um, what to do. And just by having that tone of partnership from the beginning, I think goals is the key to starting a partnership, but also permission setting around how you expect to work. And, and parents love that. They really respond so well to that. There's only a small number of people that aren't expecting that or, or don't don't want that and you may have to change tact with them. But it's, it's important that we set that tone because not only is it, family-centered, not only is it respectful, it's actually going to enhance dosing as well. And 
you know, I say to therapists in a kind of funny way, I've never met a child that set the goal that they wanted to be friends with a therapist. That, that is not what they're there for. I like this therapist said, wow, we had so much fun together. Well, you are, and that's wonderful that it's fun. That's an enabling principle. However, that is not the goal. The goal is for the child to have the life that they want to have, and, and we get to ask them what that is and, and support them on that journey. And I think when we adopt that approach to therapy, yes, it's a little bit scary because what if they pick a goal that you weren't anticipating? But that's the privilege of working with people. That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what a fun and engaging type of therapy that you're describing and I just feel so lucky that the science backs that up, that all those neuroscience principles that you mentioned play into this really dynamic partnership and type of therapy. I think it's the kind of therapy that we as therapists want to be practicing, and sometimes we just need the little push in that direction. You mentioned the part of the potential scariness of what if the family brings an idea that's unexpected. And I wanted to ask specifically how you might handle a conversation if a family member had an idea of doing an intervention that was a red light intervention or just wasn't even on the traffic light. It was just something that they found online. How do you handle those conversations? Yeah, they're important conversations. So the way we handle that is just as important as the answer actually, isn't it? Because if when we're in a relationship with people, and the, the way that we're sensitive and compassionate to understanding why they're asking that question is really important as well and offering respect. So, you know, it's a basic principle. All parents absolutely want to do the best uh, for their child. So I come to the question with that operating assumption. So I would ask, you know, you might in the psychology literature and a coaching mode think of it as the so what question. So I would ask it really like, right, okay. So you've obviously done a bit of thinking about that. So if you, let's just say you got into that therapy. What is it that you want to get back from it? What is it that you want to see change? So I try and switch it from the choice of therapy straight onto the outcome at the beginning and try to understand that because that will tell me a couple of things. First of all, how much they know about it and how much thinking and, and wrestling they've done about that idea, what their sort of emotional tone about commitment to that type of therapy is. It'll also give me some clues about how much they understand and what we call the mechanisms of action, like what is behind that therapy and, and is it likely to deliver the result thereafter. But also help me understand do they know what they want or is it that they've heard this is a good thing and they sort of have a little bit of you know, that tricky parent guilt that goes on, I, I should give everything to my child. And if so-and-so said it's a good idea, I should find it within myself to get it for my child too, but not really sure why they're getting it other than they don't want their child to miss out on anything. So, you know, understanding where the person is is always the key to having what might end up being quite a difficult conversation, but having that difficult conversation in a, in a compassionate and kind way. So I think that's important, especially if you're going to have to give bad news in this conversation. So framing it up in inviting questions and understanding what they know from the beginning. So one of the techniques we use uh, when we get through what the motivation, if we can get to an outcome, that's the best place, is then um, pull out the traffic light 
paper. We actually have a version of it which people can freely download for parents if they want on our website, which is cerebralpalsy.org.au. And if you just put traffic light into the search there, you'll find a full fact sheet that you can give to parents. It's a not-for-profit organisation, so it's just freely available. And what we do is we sit down with what we call the traffic map or the bubble chart and say, okay, so let's take a, here's a real example that I've had this conversation with a family. They say, I want to get a hyperbaric oxygen therapy for my child and they have cerebral palsy. And so we go through why do you want to do it? Well, I have the chance to uh, get this machine for free or get this therapy or whatever it is. So I explore what they know. So hyperbaric oxygen is a green light intervention for burns, for example. So somebody postulated or theorized that if you gave a child with cerebral palsy more oxygen, then it would improve their movement. Now, if we unpack the mechanism of action behind that, there are a couple of problems with that line of thinking. First of all, it makes an assumption that cerebral palsy was a hypoxic event. That's one causal pathway to cerebral palsy, but not the only one. So you can see how somebody kind of married those two ideas. But it also assumes that the six-year-old has still got a loss of oxygen and giving them more would help. So there's sort of a science logic problem there with why more oxygen might help. So I have that piece of science in the back of my head. And, the, and then with the the family and I ask them what do you want well I want them to be able to get dressed so it's a self-care goal so what we do is we pull out the traffic map and we go to the outcome indicators that are on the top there there's different columns on the traffic light paper on the graph there and if you looked at the graph that's about self-care you'll see a range of green yellow and red bubbles so different treatment options to achieve self-care first thing we'd notice is mm, actually hyperbaric oxygen is actually not even on here as a known way to improve self-care it is over here on this other chart with the aim of improving movement but interestingly it's red over there can did you know that can i talk you through that let me talk you through the research so it's been x number of randomized trials looking at this issue depending on the person's health literacy what language you use but one of the reasons this got a red code was that actually a number of children that had this clinical treatment, not only did it not improve their movement, there was this, their movement was the same as the control group, but children that received hyperbaric oxygen also lost their hearing. So they had harm for being involved in this treatment. So in that case, we went on balance of benefits, harms, losing the hearing would be a big deal for your child. So we coded it as red. So it's an interesting idea, but we coded it as red. How does that sit with you? What are you, what are you thinking? And so then usually people, like the idea of their children losing their hearing is a fairly horrifying idea, which gives you an opening then to be saying, okay, would you like me to walk you through what is a green light intervention for improving self-care? And you'll find two green bubbles there. One of them is goal-directed training and the other one is um, home programs using the task-specific training approach. Could I tell you more about those? And you tell people and you say, how's that sitting with you? Where, where are you at right now with this thinking process? And most people will say, I'd like to try <laughs> goal-directed training um, at that point. And other people say, I still think I want to try the hyperbaric oxygen or Another common thing is they're worried about your judgment, so they don't tell you what they're going to do at all, and they just go away and try it because they're worried you're going to judge them for it. But, you know, I'm always clear with people. I, I'm a person that keeps an open mind about everything, but if something's going to cause harm to children, you know, I'm likely to let you know about that because I know you enough as a person to know that isn't something you'd want to do. So here's some alternative options. 
you know, um, but let me know what you decide to do. So I just keep it open and leave the parent as decision maker as well. And, you know, 99% of the time, that's not a real step, but I would find families end up choosing very minor interventions when we use that process. So the therapists at our centre have that traffic map open with parents all the time um, choosing between interventions. And we find it really helpful because not only are you guiding evidence into their decision making you're actually teaching them first of all all the options what these treatments can and can't do or what you might hope they're going to do but actually there's this other one i haven't heard about that can reach that target so you're teaching health literacy at the same time and and that sets people up for a positive future as well so that's how we do it i'm sure there's many other ways you could handle it as well yeah, that power of that shared language is so incredible. And I love just picturing that traffic light being used with parents. I'm thinking, too, of therapists and peer-to-peer relationship where we're talking to each other about what works and what doesn't work. And the reality that as OTs over the course of our career, there's going to be so many changes and we are either going to realize we're doing something that may be like low yellow or red, or we just look back and we realize we've done treatments that weren't effective. I totally think about that for myself. And I've talked about that on the podcast where I would see a patient then like go back in my office and write the goals. And I don't even know if they ever knew what the goals were. Like they were so uninvolved in the treatment plan. How do you think as OTs we can process the reality that we're going to need to change over our careers and just process that maybe we've done something that's ineffective? That's a great question. I I love that you're a reflective person. I I like to be a reflective person as well and position myself outside and inside the moment and and could I have done better? Is Is there a different way forward here? But I think strangely, we somehow accept that mobile phone technology would be constantly moving. (laughs) So why would we think that neurology and rehabilitation wouldn't be moving is kind of an interesting idea. And I think it gets a little bit wrapped up between this idea of identity. I have particular strengths and skills here. I'm a therapist that can do this or I'm certified in this particular approach, for example. But that can blindside you a little bit because you're so good at it and no doubt you're better at it than other people. But actually, we need to also maintain an open-mindedness that probably everything we're talking about today will be out of date in five years' time. There'll be a new set of knowledge. That's just how our knowledge is going. I mean, it's, you know, medical knowledge is advancing in an incredible rate. Um, so I think maintaining an open-mindedness. And an example I always sort of think about is children with SMA. So a fatal disease of childhood. It's not that long ago that our role as OT was to provide palliative care to these children, support their function and their comfort and inclusion whilst they were dying. These days they receive uh, a gene therapy called Zolgansma. Um, it's an absolute game changer. Now, instead of going backwards, they're improving function. We're doing training interventions like we would do with a child with cerebral palsy, and they're going off the charts on the, the tests, the functional tests. So it's not about being afraid of losing an expertise. It's about being able to change with it. And I think if 
for me, what I choose to do is say, how can I support children and families to have the best possible life they want to have? Well, that means I'm going to be keeping up to date of what's available to them to help them support those goals. And I, I think that's something we can always do as a profession. I, I, you know, I look back in the early stretch of my career and one of the things I would say with complete embarrassment I did it was the, it was the mode of the time was to pull out a standardized assessment for the child, identify everything that was wrong, that wasn't normal with the child, you know, fairly kindly report that back to the families and they'd find it a devastating experience. And then we start treatment fixing all these things. Well, we now know that neurology and neuroscience certainly doesn't work that way. It's a devastating experience for families and they're going to be in therapy for years if you if you adopt that approach. Whereas if we start top-down, what is the child's goal? And we train that goal, we harness in plasticity and we get independence, we get success, then they move on to another goal and you get generalization, you get a much faster and larger treatment effect. And I've learned to live with that. I've been I was trained that way and I, I, I practiced that way. But, you know, I've managed to move forward. There's a couple of treatment approaches on that traffic light that I read. I did the formal training in those. I, I've done those things, but I moved forward because information changes. And, you know, a small disclosure, I have a chronic health condition myself. So sometimes I sit with the patient hat and I, I know what it's like to see, receive beneficial treatment. But I also, unfortunately, know what it's like to receive harmful treatment. And that sort of gives me a compass that actually patients really deserve our best efforts to stay up to date. Often they're more up to date than we are because they're so motivated about their own healthcare, but adopting that sort of open mindedness to, to new things. But remember always that the most exciting part of being a health professional is when you see someone improve. And so why wouldn't you use the most up-to-date thing? Because they're much more likely to improve. It's actually going to give you job satisfaction as well. So that there's a lot to, a lot to why it would be a, a good way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when I think about the OTs, I know they totally have this growth mindset, like baked into them. And sometimes I think we just need the push to live into that and conversations like this where our peers are going through the same thing and kind of nudging us to this new exciting future. Yeah, this has just all been so helpful. I can't believe it. We're getting close to the end of our hour and I had some rapid fire questions I wanted to ask you if you're up for it. How do you usually describe occupational therapy? Ah, I usually don't use the words. (laughs) 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 because I find occupation is a barrier to most people particularly when you're talking about children because they think about work so I talk about helping children live their best potential and then when they're we're on the same page I tend to introduce the words occupational therapy but maybe I get in trouble for saying that from the profession but it's the reality I I I live in (laughs) Mm -hmm. awesome what's your favorite part about your work my favorite part about my work is working with families. You know, they're the guiding force. They're the people on our board. They're the, they're the reason we come to work. It's a privilege to learn from them. Absolutely. That's why I do this work. What's one OT-related assessment that you're excited about right now? I'm going to give you a theoretical answer. I love it when people choose the right assessment fit for purpose. So is it a predictive tool to predict cerebral palsy? Is it an evaluative tool to predict a treatment change? Or is it a discriminative tool like those ones I'm saying I'm glad I don't use anymore to say this child's not normal and I'm going to fix everything? But 
those are great if you pick them to write a funding assessment. So I love it when therapists pick the right assessment for the moment. So I'm not where to do any particular tool, but there's so many now on cerebral palsy. There's a lot to choose from. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's so many throughout our profession. I think that's a really exciting thing happening right now. What's something you've read recently that's inspired you as an OT? Okay, so right now I'm reading about the power of professional networks. So what I'm really interested in is a lot of us, um, you know, as clinicians do our own part as researchers, we might do our own bit, our own centre, but we end up with small studies that answer, you know, only a small part of the question and the, the difficult questions families are asking. So I'm reading a lot about how do we use professional networks like what if we had a global clinical trials network for cerebral palsy where you could get an answer in one study instead of something like constraint-induced movement therapy, which people use a lot, which had over 30 randomised trials. Like what if we could save the money from 25 of those trials and answer 25 more questions? So um, I'm really excited about what's the power of togetherness and um, could we answer things for patients faster? I think the knowledge-to-practice gap is slow. It takes us... 10 to 20 years on average to embed new research into practice. It takes another 17 years to find a new treatment in the first place. So, you know, that's more than a couple of childhoods. So I'm really excited about this idea of um, global collaboration that could accelerate research to provide answers to uh, families, but also um, options for clinicians. Hmm. Yeah, I'm on the same page as you. I'm reading Collective Genius right now. And I think there's just so much potential out there if we could connect and really harness that collective genius in our profession and across research. This has been such a just exciting conversation for me. I was wondering if there's any final thoughts that came to your mind that you wanted to re-emphasize or something you've pieced together during this talk. Oh, thank you for this opportunity to be in the conversation. I think I reflect back on my career and the most important thing we can do is ask children what are their goals. I'll tell you a funny story. The first time I did that in a randomized trial, this sassy young four-year-old told me that she wanted to pee in the backyard like her brother. And yeah. I remember thinking, hmm, not sure whether you get in the control group or the intervention group yeah. if we can help you with that. However, the sense of agency that comes from asking children what's important to them, the sense of respect, but also the harnessing of plasticity when you do land on a goal that's realistic and possible for people. The idea for children to say, I did it myself, is is extraordinary. So I think, you know, even if you feel afraid to adopt this style because you do lose control, you know, people ask you to teach them skateboard tricks. They ask you all sorts of things and maybe you don't know how to do. But um, using this approach, we really harness what the centre of the profession is about. And honestly, there's no greater joy for a therapist to watch a child achieve something and actually the joy of the parents watching them do it themselves rather than helping them do it. So that would be my final words that even if it's frightening, let go of control because children are their own best agents for choosing what to do. Hmm. Well, Iona, thank you for giving us this nudge in this direction today and just thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much. Wow, like I said at the beginning, I am so thankful to be an OT at this point in history when we have such compelling research coming out and leaders like Dr. Novak that really push us to keep up with best practice and ultimately just to keep our clients at the heart of our work and our decision making. There is so much to discuss from this article and to unpack from our discussion today. 
So for members of the OT Potential Club, I really hope you hop into our forums and let us know your questions, your thoughts, what stood out to you about this research. The OT Potential Club is also where you will go to earn a certificate for your time today if you would like continuing education credit. All you have to do is pass our test within the club and we will generate a certificate for your time today. And as always, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.